fun fact. You know, it was yeah. the second city in the world to have electric lighting on the streets. I, I feel like I look like really clever, but I just found this out like a couple of months ago when I was there. So, okay, the first is Paris, right? First city in the world to have electric lighting on the streets. What's the second one? And I can just tell you straight away, you're never going to guess it. I would, I wouldn't. It's Krasnoyarsk in Siberia. It's not St. Petersburg, it's not Berlin, it's not London, it's Krasnoyarsk. Because they, um, they had a gold rush there in the 19th century, just like, you know, you guys had here in Alaska, I guess. And so they had just so much money, they didn't know what to do with it. So one of the local merchants said, okay, what the heck, I'm just gonna do electric lighting on my street any day. So that's the second city in the world after Paris to have electric lighting. I was there a couple of months ago, so that's the only reason I know this. Four, three, two, one. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to another edition of the Slava Connection. My name is Zach Johnson. I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Taylor Ham and Vladimir Karmurza. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. First of all, it's great to join you guys for this, for this conversation. So I guess to begin with, I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on what the current state of the opposition is, where it's headed, what trends that you see coming up. And Zach, if you want to add to... Yeah, as much as you can generalize, yeah. right? What, what is the current state of, of the opposition in Russia now after the, the parliamentary elections of, of this previous fall? Let's settle on terms before we even start this subject, because, you know, the term opposition usually comes from democratic systems. Oppositions usually sit in parliaments and television studios. They take part in elections and so on. In my country, the most prominent leaders of the opposition are either dead, exiled or in prison. Boris Nemtsov, who was the leading political opponent of Vladimir Putin, former deputy prime minister of Russia, and who was assassinated uh, literally under the walls of the Kremlin, nearly seven years ago in February of 2015, said in one of his last interviews, he was sort of asked the same question, something about the opposition or him being an opposition leader. And he broke off the journalist and said, please don't call me opposition leader, call me a dissident for that precise reason, because the term opposition comes from, from democracies. I don't think it's, it's really applicable to, to the kind of political system we have under Vladimir Putin in, in Russia today. But to the substance of your question, Sometimes the, uh, you know, people outside, people in the West, it's difficult for them to notice the fact that there even is an opposition in Russia, the fact that there are people who, who oppose the current regime because Vladimir Putin and his massive, well-oiled, well-financed, well-developed propaganda machine are doing their best to try to pretend that there is no opposition to Putin's rule in Russia. Everybody loves him, everybody supports him, and that's, of course, what every dictatorship does. If you look at the so-called election results that the world's dictators produce, it's usually 99.9%. This is what happened in Soviet times. This is what you see in countries like North Korea and so on, because they want to maintain this pretense that they're universally loved and admired by their people. Of course, that, needless to say, and I don't need to tell you that, there's nothing to do with, with reality. And um, beyond this fake artificial facade of unanimity and popular support created by Putin's regime. There are many people in Russia who fundamentally oppose what's happening to, in our country today, what's been happening in our country for more than two decades now since Vladimir Putin has been in power, who fundamentally reject Putinism in all of its aspects, both in the domestic and in foreign policy. Domestic aspects being autocracy, corruption, kleptocracy, ruled by thieves, classic definition from, from ancient Greece. This is exactly what we have in Russia today. The people who are in power are stealing from our country and from our people. The lack of alternative, the lack of political competition, the lack of political pluralism. Um, you know, you can get years in prison for taking part in a peaceful opposition rally. Uh, and that's not the worst that can happen if you oppose the regime. 
And of course, I don't need to tell you about the foreign policy aspects of, of Putin's dictatorship. An aggressive stance, neo-imperialism trying to reconquer some of the territories uh, lost after the collapse of the Soviet Empire. Very prominently, we see this today with, with what's happening on the borders with Ukraine. And there are many, many people in Russia who fundamentally reject this system and this worldview and who want our country to be different. You know, one of the, the most prominent leaders of the Russian opposition today, uh, anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny, who is, of course, in prison as we speak, and who was poisoned in 2020 by a special death squad that operates within the Russian FSB, the Federal Security Service, was on uh, giving an interview a couple of years ago, I guess, on uh, Echo of Moscow radio, which is the last major remaining independent media outlet in Russia. And he was asked by the journalist, by the anchor, you know, what's, what's the opposition's program? Let's say you come to power tomorrow, what are you going to do? And I suppose uh, the journalist was expecting a long, drawn, drawn out, detailed response with, I don't know, policy proposals or whatever. And uh, Navalny just responded with, with one sentence. He said, we want Russia to be a normal European country. In that short phrase, there's so much. I travel a lot um, around Russia. I'm, I'm a Moscow by myself. I'm, I live in Moscow, but we, we are the largest country in the world. And so I do travel a lot around the regions and speak with people, and especially among the young people in Russia. There is a growing sense of not so much even perhaps political opposition, but just restlessness, because we've had one man in power for 22 years and counting. And this is simply not normal. You know, we have an entire generation in Russia who have no other political memory than Vladimir Putin and his regime. We have people in Russia who were born, went to kindergarten, went to school, went to college, are now, uh, you know, entering their adult professional lives, and all this time, one man has stayed in power. You in America have had five presidents of different political parties at, at that time that we've just had this guy. And so there's a growing realization that this, this has to change. Of course, the problem with systems like, like we have is that they do not allow for change at the ballot box. Whatever criticism you, you can have towards your political leaders, you have an opportunity every four years to come and peacefully change them at the ballot box. We do not have that opportunity. And history shows very clearly, and before being a politician or journalist, I'm, I'm actually a historian by education, history shows very clearly that in countries where governments cannot be changed at the ballot box, they are sooner or later changed on the streets. And I think this is the only a way forward that's possible for us in Russia. So I did want to ask on that note of, of those who do oppose Putin, your views on the other parties, right? We obviously have United Russia, but how you view, you know, LDPR, uh, the Communist Party, because I think as Russia watchers and followers, we tend to think of them as kind of puppet parties of the state and they play a certain role in the political theater of Putin's Russia. But then we do see a situation like in Khabarovsk, you know, in 2021 with Mr. Forgal and this incredible outpouring and, and the sheer disdain, it seems, that the center and United Russia had for this, this figure of, of a different party. So in that sense, it seems that there is a role for these, I'm not going to call them opposition parties after your previous response, but these other parties. But then at the same time, they can be simply a, uh, an item of, of political theater in, in Putin's Russia as well. So, you know, there are always well-wishers uh, or wishful thinkers, I should, should just say, in, in the West who try to find something good in every new Kremlin leader that comes to power. You know, decades ago when Yuri Andropov, long-time head of the Soviet KGB, became general secretary, this was in, in the early 80s, he was somebody who had epitomized the worst of the worst of post-Stalin Soviet political repression. He put dissidents in prison, put them in psychiatric hospitals. He was one of the people behind the uh, invasion of Hungary in 1956 and so on. But, you know, those Western wishful thinkers try to find something good about him. And so there were these rumors spread that, you know, he secretly listened to jazz. He liked French cognac or something like that. And so when Putin came to power, 
more than two decades ago now, it was pretty clear to everybody, certainly to many of us in Russia, just who this guy was and what his policies would be. But of course, you know, there were the wishful thinkers uh, in, in, in Western capitals who said, no, but look, you know, this guy spent so many years of his life in Germany, surely he must have, you know, something must have rubbed off on him. And it certainly did. The problem was it was the wrong Germany, of course. He was stationed in communist East Germany, the DDR, the so-called German Democratic Republic. And the political system, the party system that Vladimir Putin created in Russia today, to go to your question, strikingly resembles the system they had in communist East Germany. Because unlike the Soviet Union, which was a one-party state where only the Communist Party existed and nothing else, East Germany, on paper, was a multi-party system. They had, of course, the ruling party, the Socialist Unity Party, but they also had the Christian Democrats, they had the Liberal Democrats, they had God knows who else. Of course, this was all a sham. And, and in all the important questions, in fact, in all the questions, these so-called alternative parties unanimously voted in favor of whatever the regime proposed. This is exactly the system we have in Russia today. If you look on paper, our so-called parliament, the Duma, includes now even five political parties. That's such a step forward for democracy after the so-called elections in 2021. But of course, if you look at all the important votes in the Duma, they go unanimously in favor of what the Kremlin wants, or, or nearly unanimously. And there's sometimes very few exceptions, such as the one vote in opposition uh, on the annexation of Crimea in 2014, eight votes in opposition on the blanket ban on adoptions of Russian orphan children by U.S. citizens. This was back in 2012, but these are small exceptions. Generally, all these so-called opposition parties are in complete agreement with the Kremlin, and this is how it's supposed to be, and this is the whole nature of the system. So, you know, back in the day, I'm old enough to remember what a democratic Russia looked like when we still had independent media, when we still had free elections, when we still had a pluralistic parliament. This, this has long ceased to exist. Mr. Putin made sure of that. And I think one of the best sentences that will go down to define the Putin regime in future history books was the phrase uttered a few years ago by Boris Grislov, current Russian ambassador in Minsk, who was at the time the speaker of the Russian Duma, who said, and I quote, Parliament is not a place for discussion, end of quote. Um, this is the reality that we're living in today. There are no genuine opposition parties, almost none, I should say. There's one partial exception still left, there is a party called Yablako, which is uh, sort of a veteran pro-democracy party, the last holdover of the, of the 1990s, a brief period of political freedom. It's the last registered opposition party that still retains ballot access, that speaks out on, on issues candidly, that opposes not just Putin's domestic policy, but also his foreign policy, including, for example, everything he's doing towards Ukraine. And in, the last, in our last so-called election in September of 2021, Yablaka was branded as a foreign agent. So we now have not just foreign agent NGOs, media outlets, journalists and individuals, we now have foreign agent political parties. And so all of their campaign literature, all of their leaflets, you know, t-shirts, newspapers, all their, you know, YouTube ads, whatever, everything had to be labeled with a slanderous designation that this is a party that contains a candidate, blah, 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 who's designated as a foreign agent. Because the reason is because they had the tenacity to nominate a political prisoner as one of the candidates. Actually, my good friend and colleague, Andrei Pivovarov, who is currently sitting in a detention center in the Russian, in the southern Russian city of Krasnodar, facing up to six years in prison for making a few Facebook posts. And this is also the reality of Vladimir Putin's Russia today. Western well-wishers, right? And this certainly, as far as the Putin government goes, this begins with Bush, the sense of the soul. We saw the, the cheeseburger summits with Medvedev and, and Obama. Uh, and then we even saw some kind of rapprochement with Biden initially. Why do our leaders seem to have, if we can set aside naivete, 
Why do they have this almost burning desire, it seems, to try to engage with Mr. Putin after 22 years now? This is a central question. And thank you for making that point, because I think it's, you know, when we talk about everything that the Putin regime has done in the last two decades plus and continues to do, obviously the lion's share responsibility lies with Mr. Putin and his close entourage for everything that happened. But there is a role also for Western enabling in the way that Western leaders, in particular American presidents of both political parties, have been frankly complicit in the establishment and strengthening of Putin's authoritarian regime with all the consequences that we see from that today. So there were five different American presidents at the time that Putin has been in power. Probably not fair to include Bill Clinton because he was a lame duck by the time Putin came in. It was, it was his last year, so let's keep him out of this. But everybody else, to one extent or another, acted in complicity and acted as an enabler of Vladimir Putin's regime. George W. Bush, as you just uh, alluded to, famously or infamously uh, looked into Putin's eyes and, and, and you know, saw a sense of his soul or whatever it was. Barack Obama had uh, the reset, ill-fated reset with the Kremlin and publicly praised Putin for the great work he's doing on behalf of the Russian people. This is a quote. On Donald Trump, I don't know where to begin. I mean, you try to get, get Putin back into the G8 and, 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 and publicly placated him and, and, and all the rest of it. And I have to say to a lot of people, the current U.S. administration has been, has been a grave disappointment when it came to policy on the Kremlin. I'll just give you one, one example, which I think tells a lot. In the more than a year now that Biden has been president, the U.S. administration has made zero designations against Putin's officials or oligarchs under the Magnitsky Act, which is a U.S. law intended to place targeted sanctions on Kremlin officials complicit in human rights abuses and corruption. There have been Magnitsky designations against individuals in a multitude of countries during this past year, you know, from Ukraine to Nicaragua to, to, you know, you name it, but not a single one in relation to the actual regime for which this law was intended. And so we see time after time, and, you know, I use this term wishful thinkers, I think that there are stronger words to, that can be used, enablers, fellow travelers, you, you name it, and it's, it's, it's not a new phenomenon. This happened, of course, in Soviet times as well. That's where the term fellow travelers comes from. And we see this again today. And, you know, if in the early years of Mr. Putin, some of this could sort of be, I guess, attributed to just not enough knowledge or, you know, he was only, he was only starting. Although, again, let me repeat this to, to many of us in Russia, it was very clear from the very beginning, literally from the first moment, what, what this man would do. I mean, one of the first things he did, Putin, that is, when he became president of Russia, was to restore the Stalin-era Soviet national anthem as a national anthem of the Russian Federation. Russia is a country of symbols, and this is the most powerful one you can choose. But okay, let, let's be generous here, and you can, I guess you can say for the early years of Putin, some of these Western leaders may have just not understood him well enough. But, you know, now that has been in power for nearly a quarter of a century, there really is no justification. And, you know, there can be different reasons for this, but one of the reasons, I think, was, was offered very aptly several decades ago by Vladimir Bukovsky, who's a very prominent Soviet-era uh, dissident and, and prisoner of conscience in the Soviet Union. He once wrote that for too many Western politicians, their ability to fry their morning bacon on Soviet gas beats any kind of human rights concerns. And, you know, you replace the word Soviet with the word Russian or actually any other autocratic regime with, with energy resources. And that phrase rings as true today as it did when Bukowski wrote it. And, you know, we don't need to go too far with examples on this. Just take, you know, former Chancellor of Germany, Gerhard Schroeder, who currently runs Putin's errands working for a million euro a month salary or whatever it is at, at, at the... Kremlin-owned state energy giant Gazprom. So uh, I guess there are still quite a few Western politicians for whom bacon is more important than human rights. 
But I don't want to end this part of our conversation on a on a negative note because in my years now of advocacy, a lot of my work is international. And I've worked, as you know, on, on advocating for the Magnitsky Act, not just in the U.S., but in many other Western countries. And I'm proud to say that almost every major Western jurisdiction now has this law in the books, not just the U.S., but Canada, the U.K., the entirety of the European Union, Australia, just before the new year. And to me, actually, the most important and the most optimistic takeaway of this work is that there are still enough political leaders in Western countries for whom human rights are no less important than bacon. Uh, and that, to me, is, is much more important and much more positive. I had a few questions on the Magnitsky sanctions. For the United States foreign policy, sanctions are a huge part of our strategy. Do you think they're working? Are they targeting the right people? Are they targeting the right businesses? Also, we have several Western European countries that also have adopted them as part of their foreign policy tools as well. Do you see any other countries that we could bring on to maybe strengthen strengthen their impact or strengthen how um, we can curb Putin's advancing into other countries and, and things like that? So there are, of course, different types of sanctions. Right. In, you know, in, in previous years or previous generations, sanctions would usually target entire countries. Uh, you know, if, if a Western democracy say, was unhappy with something an authoritarian regime was doing, it would place sanctions on a whole country, essentially targeting and punishing the entire population of that country. And we've seen this many times in, in history, but in relation to Russia or then the Soviet Union, this was perhaps most prominent in the famous Jackson-Vanik Amendment that was passed in the 1970s in response to the restrictions on freedom of emigration from the Soviet Union. And those were general trade sanctions that targeted the entire Soviet economy. Uh, and this happened many times in history for, for many other countries. The problem with such sanctions, the general sanctions, is, well, first of all, that they are fundamentally unfair, in my view. Why should the entire population be punished for the actions of a small, unelected, authoritarian clique at the top? Right? That's, that's, that's sort of the principal issue here. But also, from a very practical standpoint, such general sanctions give these dictatorships a very easy excuse to explain away the economic problems that their people are suffering from because of, because of these regimes' mismanagement and corruption and, and policies and so on. But general sanctions from outsiders give these regimes an easy excuse to say, oh, it's, it's not because of us, it's because of the Americans over there. And so more than a decade ago now, when the Magnitsky sanctions came into play as a tool of, of international sanctions policy, they absolutely revolutionized this world because the premise of the Magnitsky sanctions is that they are by their very nature individual and targeted. Instead of going in a blanket way after an entire country or an entire population, these sanctions are fine-tuned to target specific individuals who are personally complicit in acts of human rights abuse or acts of corruption by denying these individuals' ability to get visas on assets or use the financial and banking systems of the country that passes this legislation. And just conversely to the general sanctions, first of all, this is, of course, fundamentally just because you're targeting the people who actually deserve it. And secondly, this is extremely effective, certainly in relation to regimes such as Vladimir Putin's, because, you know, let's not forget Putin's regime is not just an autocracy, it is also a kleptocracy. Uh, and these people who are in charge of the Kremlin today, they've long made a habit of stealing from our people in Russia and then stashing away and spending and investing that stolen loot in Western countries where their money is protected by the rule of law. The very rule of law, they deny their own citizens. And so there's this astonishing hypocrisy where you have the people who attack and abuse and undermine the most basic norms of democracy and rule of law in our country, 
and then come to enjoy the benefits and the fruits of the same notions of, of rule of law, democracy, and human rights in countries of the West, where they have all their money, their bank accounts, their villas, their yachts, their wives, their mistresses, whatever. And this is, of course, enormous hypocrisy on their part, but it also, to go back to what we were just talking about previously, this is also enabling, in my view, on a part of Western governments that allow for this corrupt and dirty money to be stored in their systems, in their banks, in their financial institutions, and so on. And so the Magnitsky Act and Magnitsky Principle is intended to stop all that. And I have to say, when we first started this work, together with the late Boris Nemtsov, the leader of the Russian opposition, he was absolutely key to convincing the American Congress to pass this law back in the early 2010s. The Obama administration was dead against it. They had the reset with Putin, as, as we were just discussing. And it took a lot of effort, a lot of time to convince members of Congress to pass this legislation. And Boris Nemtsov played an absolutely central role in, in that process. And the late Senator John McCain, who was a, a co-author of the U.S. Magnitsky Act, once said publicly on the record that there would not have been a Magnitsky Act in America without Boris Nemtsov. And that is an astonishing statement from an American senator. Prominent and very effective advocate for passage of the Magnitsky Act, which President Obama signed last December. And I remember when we first began that work, this was 2010, people would you know, sort of roll their eyes at us and say, it's never going to happen. The interests are too powerful. There's too many people who want this flow of corrupt money to continue. And, and they're absolutely right, by the way, there are. But you know, at the end of the day, when you take those arguments out into the public, there is no public argument for allowing murderers and torturers and crooks and thieves to use your banks and to get your visas. It does not exist. And so once this comes out into the public, of course, our side wins, and the Magnitsky Act was passed in the U.S. Congress in both houses with overwhelming majorities. I don't need to tell you, not many pieces of legislation get overwhelming bipartisan majorities in this era, but the Magnitsky Act did. And then similar laws were passed in European countries, in Canada, in, in the UK, and so on. But of course, it's not only about having the laws, it's also about implementing them, because the law itself doesn't impose any sanctions, right? The law only establishes the principles under which sanctions can be imposed. But it, it then falls onto the executive branch. So in the American case, it's the State Department and the Treasury who have to make these designations. And as we have seen in this last decade now that the law has been operational, the executive branch has been really, really hesitant to actually use the authority that they have. And this is not just in the U.S. This is across, across the Western world. And so to answer your question, Taylor, how effective these sanctions have been, they haven't been effective, but that's only because they haven't been used. I was going to say to their full extent, but not even nearly to them. I mean, to the full extent does not even apply. I mean, if you look at the list of the top, you know, oligarchs and kleptocrats around Putin, you will see that most of them, in fact, almost all of them, are still freely able to roam both sides of the Atlantic, as they do. And so, you know, for example, a year ago in early 2021, after Alexei Navalny returned to Russia and was arrested, his team released a list of several key Putin associates and oligarchs who should be targeted by Western sanctions, well, it's now been more than a year, and most of those people are still nowhere to be found in any of those sanctions lists. So it's a question of political will, above all, and I think there is an important role for public opinion, for the media, and for elected lawmakers, for parliaments in, in, over in Europe, or for Congress here, to actually push the executive to do something about it. And, and we know of several examples where this has happened because of such pressure. And to give you just two, Alexander Bastrykin, who is a top law enforcement official in, in Putin's regime, head of the investigative committee, the person who is responsible for many politically motivated prosecutions in, uh, in, in Putin's Russia, he was placed on the U.S. sanctions list under the Magnitsky Act directly because of congressional pressure, public congressional pressure. Uh, and more recently, in 2019, one of the key organizers of the assassination of Boris Nemtsov, a uh, close acolyte of uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, who is the Putin-appointed head of Chechnya, a man by the name of Ruslan Geremeyev, who is himself an office in the Russian Interior Ministry, 
he was sanctioned uh, by the U.S. Treasury under the Magnitsky Act for his role in organizing the assassination of Boris Nemtsov. So when there is enough public pressure, governments feel the need to act. Uh, so it's by, by this stage, now that most Western countries have this legislative mechanism, it's a question of political will more than anything else. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, Magnitsky Act has a sunset mechanism. The Russia-specific Magnitsky Act does not. It was permanent. It was uh, the one that was passed in 2012. But the global Magnitsky Act that was passed four years later in 2016, and that expanded the scope of this legislation to every country in the world. And that's the, that's the double brilliance of the Magnitsky Act. It is both personal and global at the same time. Personal in the sense that it targets individuals, who are personally complicit in these abuses and global in a sense that it doesn't discriminate between countries. And I mean, if you look at the current sanctions list that the US maintains under the Global Magnitsky Act, you will find, for example, citizens of democracies because you know it's, it's not about countries, it's about individuals who are complicit in these abuses. And so the Global Magnitsky Act did have a sunset. It was passed in 2016. The sunset was for six years. So this year it has to be reauthorized, 2022. But I'm, I'm hopeful even given the current, you know, not very bipartisan, let's put it mildly, atmosphere in Washington, I think this will be a rare exception, and, and I'm hopeful and in fact confident that the Global Magnitsky Act will be reauthorized. As for the Russia-specific Magnitsky Act, it was permanent, but I remember when, when it was being passed in November of 2012, Boris Nemtsov and I were sitting on the visitors' gallery in the U.S. House Representatives' Chamber in, in Washington watching them vote on this bill. And, you know, when, when it was clear that it would pass, because you have the screen on the wall there and they show you the, you know, the vote tally, when it was clear that it would get over half the votes and it, ended up having nearly 90% of the House in favor. Boris Nemtsov turned to me and he said two things which I'll never forget. He said, first of all, and I, and I repeat this phrase often, he said, this is the most pro-Russian law ever passed in the history of any foreign country because it targets those people who abuse the rights of Russian citizens and who steal the money of Russian taxpayers. And the second thing he said was that when we have democracy and rule of law in Russia again, I will personally, he was speaking about himself, I will personally come back here to Washington, to Congress. I will thank the members of Congress for their support at this difficult time. And I will ask them to repeal this law because we will no longer have a need for it. We will have a justice system that will be able to, to take care of its own crooks and its own criminals. And of course, we know that Boris Nemtsov will not be doing that. But I can tell you that, you know, if I live to that day, I will come to Washington. I will meet with those members who helped make this law possible and I will ask them to repeal it. Of course, that doesn't apply to the Global Magnitsky Act. That is an instrument that is to stay there forever, uh, a global instrument of accountability and oversight for these human rights abuses of the kind that never existed before, but I think that will now exist forever and ever. So we've, we've painted, and you have in, in your work beyond this, this interview, quite a vivid picture of, of the Putin regime and, and certainly the abuses. As we're 10 years removed from from the winter protests, and you certainly said you're a historian by uh, by trade, which I, I certainly appreciate and love. And you've written on the 1905 revolution and, and the short-lived cadet party. Where do you believe Russia is? If, if we're thinking in terms of a timeline of 1905 between 1917, where do you believe modern Russia sits on that timeline? Are, are we closer to a 1917? Are we closer to another explosion like we saw in 2011 to 2013? Where do we sit on, on that timeline? That's a really important question. Uh, first of all, let me say, as a historian, the one thing that it's basically impossible to do is to try to predict political developments in Russia. You know, in, in 1904, to go back to the period you're asking about, uh, von Pleve, who was the Tsarist interior minister, boasted of the need for a small victorious war, in that case with Japan, to try to solve uh, all the domestic problems of the empire and distract, you know, the public attention away from those domestic problems. I don't think he expected 
that largely as a result of that war, which turned out to be not so small and not so victorious, just one year later, Russia would be engulfed in a revolution and the Tsar would be forced to grant a parliament, to grant press freedom, to grant freedom of assembly and so on and so forth. In late January 1917, Lenin, the Bolshevik leader, was speaking to a group of young Swiss social democrats in Zurich, Switzerland, and he ended his speech with that famous phrase that we old folks will not live to see the decisive battles of this coming revolution. The revolution began in six weeks. And I'm old enough myself to remember August of 1991, the democratic revolution in Russia, when nobody at the beginning of August could have predicted that the Soviet regime would not survive until the end of the month, and that one of the most horrendous and repressive totalitarian systems in the history of humanity would go down in three days. This is how things happen in Russia. So let, let me start with that massive caveat that this could happen tomorrow and we wouldn't know about it. Right? That's important to keep in mind. Uh, and of course, also, you know, I'm not a pundit, I'm a politician, so our job is not to predict, it's, it's to prepare, it's to work for that future change. Because one of the biggest problems with the fact that change comes so suddenly and unexpectedly in Russia is that nobody's ready for it. And, uh, and we know all the mistakes that were made, certainly by the provisional government in 1917, but also, and this is again something that's in my living memory, the democratic government in Russia made in the 1990s. A lot of those mistakes were not because of malice or bad intentions, but just because people were not prepared. I mean, it's difficult to be prepared when power falls on you in a matter of three days. So I believe actually in this sort of linking up with your first question, one of the most important tasks for the Russian opposition today is to actually prepare for that future change. However, sort of unlikely it may seem today, it will come and it will most likely come like this. Nobody will be ready for it. So we need to get those preparations now if we want to make sure the next window of opportunity succeeds. But to go back to your question, because I'm not dodging it, I very often now, and, and you mentioned also, of course, that it's, it's been 10 years since the winter of protests, right? 2011, 2012, the biggest protests under Putin's rule when tens of thousands of people were on the streets in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg and other large cities to protest against election fraud. For many of us, it was a time of euphoria. And many of us, and you know, I'm sort of, sort of ashamed to admit this now, but a lot of us thought that this would be the end for the regime. Suddenly there was this massive outburst of popular protest, which hadn't happened before under Putin. You know, for years we would be lucky to get 500 people at an opposition rally. And suddenly there were 120,000 standing on Sakharov Avenue. This was December 24th, 2011. Such an exponential, you know, increase in, 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 uh, in street activity. And many of us thought, okay, this is certainly the beginning of the end for the regime. And Boris Nemtsov, with his wisdom and his knowledge and his you know, experience and understanding, would sort of cool us down uh, and said, uh, no, this, it's, not, it's not time yet. Uh, it's, it's amazing that there are so many people protesting, but this is not deep enough yet in society. That critical mass of people who are needed in order for change to happen, we aren't there yet, he was saying 10 years. And you know, I would argue with him, no, you don't understand. And he said no. And he always said that major political changes in Russia will start happening around the mid-2020s. And he had several different reasonings for it. And this was, of course, you know, many years ago, that without knowing all of the things that we know now. But Nemtsov was in many ways a visionary. You know, he was saying, if you look back and read his old interviews and his old articles, it's striking how many things he actually got right that we see happening now. And so he always said that this is when major political changes will come uh, in Russia, the mid-2020s. But you know what? That's tomorrow by historical standards. We're already in 2022. And so, you know, the more I think back to those conversations, the more I think that he was right. But then so all the more urgent is the task of trying to prepare for that future change, because when it will start happening, it'll be far too late to, you know, sit down and try to figure out what to do now. We need to make that figuring out now. 
Boris Nemtsov was walking with a woman on a bridge close to the Kremlin. Police have confirmed that Boris Nemtsov was shot four times in the back by an unknown gunman. Nemtsov, 55, was a prominent opposition leader. Mr. Nemtsov died at the scene, a killing that's sending shockwaves through Russia's political opposition. He was scheduled to lead a big opposition march on Sunday. One that President Putin himself quickly Joining us condemned. now with more is former CBS Moscow Nemtsov was a sharp thorn in Putin's side. So I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this, having you here, we're coming upon seven years, uh, seven years, I believe, in a couple weeks yeah. since Mr. Nemtsov was, was killed and working so closely with him and having such an intimate relationship with him. What is the legacy of Mr. Nemtsov now in Russia and beyond? And who was the Boris Nemtsov that you knew? February 27th was our day, 2015, a day that will forever draw the line between the before and the after for so many of us. And, and we will have, as we do every year, we will have a memorial event. This It falls on a Sunday this year, February 27th. And of course, you know, in normal times, there would be a march of remembrance through the boulevards of central Moscow, thousands of people. Of course, now under the pretext of COVID restrictions, the Moscow City Hall has just banned everything. But, you know, for example, last year, despite these restrictions, thousands of people still came to that bridge to lay flowers and pay their respects. And I, I know that this will happen again this year because, you know, they could kill a human being, but they cannot kill his memory and his legacy. And it really drives them mad, the people in the Kremlin. I mean, despite their best efforts that everybody just forgets and turns the page and moves on, it's just not happening. And every year, thousands of people march or, or come to, to the bridge. In remembrance, every day there are fresh flowers and, and candles lit at that spot on the bridge, right next to the Kremlin, 200 yards from the Kremlin walls, where Boris was killed. And, and the authorities have tried countless times, dozens of times, they've sent the police and the municipal services to clear away the flowers, to throw away the candles, to arrest the volunteers who are standing guard. And you know, the following morning, the flowers and the candles are back because you cannot kill the memory. And they're trying to, and they, you know, time after time, they have um, rejected public petitions to install even a small memorial plaque on, on that bridge. They have refused a moment of silence in Parliament, even though Boris Nemtsov had been for many years a member of Parliament, and so on and so forth. So they are they're fighting a dead man. They are still fighting him after his death. And so his memory and his legacy, of course, lives on in the you know, thousands of Russians who come to pay their respects, and the millions of Russians who share Boris's vision for a free and democratic and European Russia. But what's also really important for us is international solidarity. And as of today, there are four world capitals, Washington DC, Prague, Kiev, and Vilnius, that have officially commemorated Boris Nemtsov with street designations, street or park designations in front of Russian embassies in those cities. We have worked with uh, lawmakers in all these countries to make this happen. And every time I come to speak at these unveilings, I always say that to me, as a Russian citizen, there can be nothing more pro-Russian than to name a street in front of the Russian embassy after a Russian statesman. And whatever these people in the Kremlin and the Russian foreign ministry say and think about this today, I know there will come a day when, when my country is proud that our embassies in these great world capitals are standing on streets and on squares that are named after Boris Nemtsov. I think the most important way to, to commemorate and to honor the legacy of Boris Nemtsov will be to make Russia a country that he wanted it to be, that he lived for and that he gave his life for. A country that would respect the rights of its own people and that would behave as a responsible player in the international community. A country that would be a little more like he was, more open, more kind, more free. And I have absolutely now that that day will come. 
and everything that we do in the Russian opposition, dissident movement, democracy movement, whatever you want to call it, everything that we do has as its goal to try to bring that day just a little closer. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. Thank you so much. You covered a lot of different issues there.